You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Welcome back to Coming Up for Air, everyone. I am Annie Highwater, author of the book Unhooked and Soon to Be Unbroken. My second book is out in July with my co-host, Lori McDougall. We are back today with a new podcast subject. So welcome, everyone. How are you doing, Lori? Good. I'm, I'm great, Annie. And it's great to hear that you have a book coming out in July. I can't wait. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. So let's just go over what's the topic for today. We're talking about not my child. Yep. Not my kid. Uh, So basically the subject is not my kid seeing the truth in layers Uh, because it is a process. Recovery is a process, but seeing truth is also a process. It takes a while to grasp the reality of a situation and even quite possibly the reality of who your child due to circumstances has maybe for a time become. So I wanted to discuss a little bit just some of the processes and points that we go through when you're dealing with a child that's gone through addiction, substance abuse, any type of behavioral or mood disorder, anything like that how it takes time to recognize what is going on and come to terms with the reality you're faced with. Right. And I, when we first started talking about this topic, I thought, wow, you know, I really, I love this topic, this, this idea of not my child and kind of wearing blinders. And I started to think about, well, where does this come from? Where does this idea of not my child and thinking in those terms before, we, and I believe it's this deep rooted belief that starts way before you're ever faced with any situation. Oh, absolutely um, does. Right? It absolutely does. It's, I mean, you can have the issue when they're kids. Right. But there's I think a lot it, of levels to it, I think. There's a, lot, there's a lot of levels to the denial. For one thing, it's personal. For another thing, you tend to see the reality about people according to the reality about yourself. So sometimes it's hard to recognize something might be going on in another person because you would never be involved in it or you're not engaging. And let alone when it's somebody you love dearly and you take everything they do personal, there's so many dynamics to it. Right. And I, I also think that there is this this belief that you actually have more, more control over a situation than you actually do. And what I mean by that is when my son was growing up and he was starting to show signs of having some mental health issues, I really, really, really believed that I could love him healthy, right? That I could really, that I as a parent could do everything perfectly. If I just did absolutely, if I read every book that was out there on parenting. You do, everyone thinks that I think. Right. That'll be fixed. Right. And I thought my love was enough. And I also thought that I thought that I had more control over the situation. 
I thought direction was enough and my um, I would just learn and become knowledgeable and information would be enough. But nothing is really ever enough. to. Con- you can't control the weather. You can't control if you're going to be in an, a vehicle accident. You can't control your health for the most part. I mean, we control anything that has to do with another person. We can guide and direct and do all of the right things, but you can't control or predict. You still can't. Right. And I learned through his... Uh, mental health illness and the and the battles and the struggles through that. I learned that his self esteem and how he perceived himself was internal. It wasn't external, right? I, that's when I started to learn that oh, all these things that I'm doing may not have the effect that I want them to have that it's, you know, you you hear about parents that do this all the time. Well, I talk to him and I praise him when he does this, or I do, you know, I want, I take them out and I spend time with them because I want to raise their self-esteem. But I have this feeling after, after dealing with everything with my son, that self-esteem and that it's internal. Yeah, I could set up a really nice environment to try and help him with and, his self-esteem. And, and be an influence, but you can't, you're, you're not in charge of the measure of it. Right. Not. Yeah. Right. You're just and not. I believed I was. Yeah. We right? all think that. <laughs> we all think yeah. that until we are rudely awakened. And that's yes. A, yes. It's a process. Right. And I also think that society does that to us as yeah. parents, right? I mean, society tells us that if our child misbehaves, it's something that we did wrong in our parenting. Yeah. Right. And, and you hear this all the time where, oh, they're going to create laws that if your child does this, then you're gonna, they're going to punish the parents, you know, trying to hold the parents yeah. responsible for the child's behavior. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that the parents could be really good parents. They could be setting down all these healthy boundaries and, you know, and setting up a great environment for the child. And the child just might go out there and, and behave that way anyway or even just go off the path right path for a season right i was really thankful when my son had gone to a private christian school and i was really good friends with one of his teachers and she had a daughter his my son's age they were friends and super cute girl you know she was a great student a really polite little girl and you know a model child and i believe to this day still probably is. but the teacher and i were having lunch one day and she was she was real just a very down to earth real person she taught in a christian school and she you know had she was very educated and there were a lot of things to look up to about her but she would always level with you and one time we were having lunch and we were talking about as our kids were getting older what things they could possibly encounter or choose for themselves and how the stakes go up the older they get you know the stakes of risk mm-hmm. when they make choices in high school can be life and death can be lifelong mm-hmm problems that they create in a short span of time. And she was saying one thing she, she said, I want to just encourage you. Don't be one of those parents that says, not my kid. She said, in fact, be one of those parents that says it quite possibly might be my kid. In fact, my kid could be the ringleader, you know, because if my kid's going to get in with the wrong crowd, it's not that the crowd's to blame. It's that he's choosing the wrong crowd. He's therefore becoming the wrong crowd, engaging in the wrong behaviors. But it, it made me realize you know, it was eye-opening for me, and I wanted to become mindful that I wasn't looking to criticize and find negativity, but I wanted to be aware that I didn't want to have a sense of this kid that he wasn't, it wasn't possible for him to fail 
or even, you know, turn kind of rogue for a while. It was possible. And I really didn't have behavior problems with my son as far before he was injured and became addicted. So we didn't really go through a season of hatred and, you know, emotional problems or anything like that. We would have dealt with it if we did, but we didn't. But I always wanted to it was just an alert for me to be aware that I don't want to have pride over my son that blinds me to where he, I didn't see the truth of him because I needed to have him on a pedestal. I needed to be able to see him as human with faults and possibly being at fault. While I'm thinking about it, successful intervention strategies to help a loved one deal with his or her substance use are often counterintuitive. Our sponsor, alliesinrecovery.net, offers suggestions that have been proven effective in getting loved ones into treatment and helping them stay there while reducing the stress, blame, and guilt we so often feel. I encourage listeners to join alliesinrecovery.net today. So as you were saying... There's another aspect to this, too, that I that I think is kind of a shoot off from this. And that is this idea that not only is it not your child, but that it's the other child. Right. That I've had many situations where my child got blamed by the other parent, like their child might have participated, but it was my child's fault because it couldn't be their child. And I ne- I never felt that way. Like I never felt, I never no, I just didn't. I didn't, I didn't feel... like certain friends and I didn't like a couple of girlfriends. Yeah. But I, I didn't blame them for anything. You know, right. in fact, I had a mom come to me last week and she said um, her son just had serious problems with addiction and had walked out of another treatment center and they weren't sure where he was. And she kept saying, you know, it's just because he's had this girlfriend. Right. She's the one that introduced him to it. She's the one that lures him back to it. She lies to him just like his last girlfriend lied to him he keep I mean she just could not see that he quite possibly might be believing lies or choosing to or lying to or at right choosing his path himself right I wasn't going to shake her awake because you the truth has to be in layers and people are at times just not quite ready you know I wasn't going to feed into a delusion either but we have to be willing to look at the fact that our kids make choices for themselves and they you know might be lured or influenced or try to you know get gain a approval or whatever the case is, but their choices are theirs. And we can't say it's not my child. It's something or someone else's fault. Right. I have felt that way many times with my kids as well, that they got themselves into a situation with a group of people. And really it's their decision that they made for themselves. It's not the other kid's fault. I might not have liked the other kid. I I don't know. I might. And and you're right. There have been girlfriends. Yep, there there have been girlfriends, there have been boyfriends um, that my daughters have had that I have not been fond of. But I try really hard not to let my kids know that. Yeah. So I'm I might Well, it's just going to cause them to bond quicker. Exactly. The more you speak against it. I don't know what it is about doing that, but it is almost it acts as an adhesive. Yeah. And when you speak against a, a friend or a relationship. For some reason, it, it joins their forces together and you are the common enemy. And right. even if it doesn't eventually work out, it does nothing but cause them to bond. So right. I learned quickly, keep it to myself and deal with it differently. But I used to tell my son all the time, I should know, I should be able to know that you're in the presence of Charles Manson, you know, somebody like right. that. And I can still trust you to choose what's right. right. I can't blame you falling. Nobody's forcing you to make decisions, especially, you know, not a girlfriend. So. Right. The ramifications and the consequences, I think, of taking this stance, this idea that that not my child, 
actually, I think can be really when you're faced with a major issue, it really is a barrier to you getting better, right? And I think, right? Don't you think so? I I think it's too, but yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's nothing but a postponement of solution. Right, exactly. And, and there's a couple of posts on the Allies in Recovery website. There's two of them that I, I started doing a little bit of research on this particular topic, but I did find, I found two posts under the, on the Allies in Recovery website, under community, under discussion blog, under denial, then you go to, you scroll down and there were, there were two things. The first one was a, an actual video and it was called The Shame of Addiction Turned My Life into a Lie. Here's what yeah. saved my family. And if any of our listeners want to, they should go and they should watch this video because it really can have, especially when you're faced with an awful issue like substance use disorder, it really can be a barrier to getting help. And this whole description, it's, it's this woman, Anita Devlin, uh, the author of this book, S-O-B-E-R, son of a bitch, everything's real. (laughs) She gives a great description of it. But also, there's another post on there that I wanted to let our listeners know about. And it was yours, Annie. And it's titled, What Does Being in Denial Actually Mean? So if you want to go and read about it, I think (laughs) you should. You should, because it's a great post. Actually, actually, Annie, and I I never said this to you. A friend of mine from up the street actually read that post that you um, that you did and sent me a huge email saying how incredible she thought it was. Wow. So yeah, so I think our listeners should go and, uh, <laughs> and check it out. Yeah, I definitely did my fair share of life experiential research on denial and it comes in many forms. There, there's just different levels of blindness, I think. And, you know, you can be blind because you're being deceived and you're being lied to and you believe lies, not because you're wanting to look the other way and wink at what's going on and act like it's not happening, but because maybe you're just deceived or maybe you're not ready to receive it all yet. I think I mentioned before how the, a teacher had been hit by a car in a parking lot where my son went to school and killed right in front of us, within feet of us, we were on the curb. And I remember everybody afterwards kind of talking about that day and everyone said the same thing. They all said, I thought it was a joke. I thought the cars were joking around when they, because two cars hit each other, both of them with their front end Mm -hmm. and she was pinned between the two. And everyone said, we thought it was a reenactment of something because you're, it was almost like a universal thing where your brain had shock absorbers that you can't take truths in all at once, especially not horrifying truths. They have to happen in layers. And I think that often pertains to when it's somebody you're in relationship with. It's in layers because you want to believe certain things or certain things are too horrible or painful, especially when it's your child. Child, it's not easy to believe your child's in danger. Right. Or in danger that they're, you know, somewhat causing. Right. It, it's in layers. It's a long time to recognize. And, you know, I always say we'd like to look at truth like getting into a swimming pool. I don't like to go in a foot at a time. I like to jump in and get it over with. So once I think truth is a possibility, I will take a hard look at, you know, hard things just because I've trained myself that it's better if I do. Right. And I just wish, though, that there was some way to kind of intervene and kind of change this line of thinking before people are faced with this. 
right? The, these yeah. types of issues and these types of struggles. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I belong to the, and I've talked about this before, but I belong to these Facebook groups, these parent Facebook yeah. groups. People will start talking about the epidemic, the opioid epidemic, and they'll start talking and they'll say things. I hear things like, um, I love my child and I'm going to talk to my kids about drugs or uh, I've talked to my kids about heroin and drugs and they promised me that they would never ever touch those drugs or I'm teaching my kids and my thoughts on it every time I read these posts is do you think I didn't do those things right go and talk to parents that are dealing with this topic or dealing with this issue in their house and ask them did you talk to your kids about these drugs my son promised me he would never ever touch these drugs and he did and and I wish that I wasn't victim to that kind of mentality that I wasn't just going along with it and thinking that I had that much control and that much power that this conversation was what was going to keep my son safe and I think that really as a society I think that we have to we have to kind of find ways to change that and we need to maybe make change the conversation that we're having with our children. Yeah. We need to normalize things like, I know that you say right now that you will never touch heroin and I trust you. And I believe that your intentions are good, but mom needs to keep you safe. And so I'm going to check in with you or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be checking your room at, at a certain point or I'm gonna be all over your technology that to me I can't preach that enough I say it all the time you should right. be all over your kids technology those things should be definitely be in place right and I I even believe that I you know maybe talking to your kids and normalizing things like drug testing yep. and saying you know what if I suspect something's off I'm gonna test you in the future and the only reason why I'm gonna do that is because I love you very much and it's my job as as your mom to keep you safe and to get you the help as early as possible that you might need, you know, and just really normalize talking about this kind of stuff. Normalize asking for help. Yeah. I told my son once, cause it, I like to paint pictures for him when he, he was younger. I said, you know how, when our dog gets out and wants to go over the fence, she can't see the danger that's past that fence of, you know, getting picked up by the dog catcher or getting out into the street and getting killed or attacked by another animal. But we know that danger. And that's why we are so strict to keep her in. And that's what I'm trying to do by setting boundaries for you is keeping you out away from that danger while you're still a minor. It in ways that they'll understand. He really, you know, understood that, you know, and we may have gone down a difficult road and, and I don't like to look at it like any of my efforts failed because we went through five years of addiction because my son was injured and it happened and he came out of it and we did the best we could in the midst of it. And it can happen to anyone, no matter how many precautions there are. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. 
CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. I had a mom email me about six months after my first book was out and she said, I write my books so that they're kid-friendly too. I I try not to cuss or anything. I try to make them real and interesting for adults, but so that kids can read them too. And her son had read it and said, I'll never put you through what this mom went through. And she sent me that in a message and I didn't, I tried not to be aggressive, but I felt aggressive about it and said, but my son wasn't pleasure seeking. And my son at that age wasn't looking to like eventually around the corner hurt me very badly and send all of us through terror and worry and panic. And my son didn't plan that. He didn't set out to make choices to hurt me. There was really nothing a promise could do. He wasn't pleasure seeking to do that. I mean, my son got injured and addicted. And even if he had came about addiction, you know, I, I feel very strongly that it doesn't matter how they come into addiction. It is what it is when you're in there. No matter any of that, you can't, I just, I really tried to stress to her it really wasn't about him making a promise at a certain age. You can't predict if you're, you're, you're going to get in a car wreck or get injured, or you can't predict that it's going to happen or not. You know, there's another thing about, about what you're talking about that kind of bothers me in that I have found that usually when a kid, a teenage kid in particular, is talking and saying things like that, they're almost setting it up like they're yeah. thinking about it. Right. I, I've seen this happen time and time again. They'll say, oh, you know, I would never do that. Yeah. And it's almost like a tip that they're thinking about it. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to happen or whatever, but it's a it's a kind of a little bit of a clue that maybe you should be looking out for things. That's right. You know, you got to be really careful how you elevate yourself and, you know, kid or adult in what, what behaviors you put yourself above. I just heard on a, the Dr. Drew podcast last, or Adam Carolla last week, a politician, and I don't know which one, was complaining about the LA area and how there's like that San Francisco ter- terminal has so many people sleeping on the streets from the heroin epidemic. And he said, well, that wouldn't happen in my family. Italian families and Catholic families stick together. So first of all, he wouldn't become addicted. Second of all, he wouldn't end up homeless. We would support him. And Dr. Drew said that was such a a-hole comment because when addiction comes in, it destroys your home and you get to a point where it everybody's on the street that you can't say, well, that won't happen in my family. It's and just, people believe it. Right. It's just an uneducated, lack right. of experience statement. It, you have no idea. And you end up faced with that very thing. I've seen that happen so many times. Thank I want to say though, even not just, not my kid, not in my home. I think there's truth in layers. Once you're faced with the reality of substance use, I remember sitting in meetings and being around even out in the LA area, you know, somewhat sophisticated meetings out there and saying, well, my kid's not as bad as, my kid hasn't gone that far yet. would really bypass everything they had done and it would come full circle and I didn't want to take that stance out there either well you know not my kid okay now it is my kid but my kid's not as bad he's not as bad as that yeah it's not like the rest of these addicted kids and I remember telling him that I mean just the it was just blindness I wasn't intending to be hurtful but I for even telling him at least you're not as messed up as that situation or right but we had our own mess and sometimes it was worse right and I've told you, I've basically done the same thing. I know that when my son was going through uh, or, or at the start of substance use disorder, I thought, okay, he's only using pills or he's only snorting. 
at least he's not shooting up. He probably isn't addicted. I really believed yeah. that. I believed because he wasn't shooting up, he wasn't addicted. And I'm sure that if those words came out of my mouth in front of other families or other mothers or dads that were going through and had already been through this issue. They must have looked at me like, oh boy, lady, you're in yeah. for a rude awakening. And I was, you know, I was in for an awakening and it happened, but I had that, that's the same thing. Yeah, it is. Same thoughts. And you know, you know enough working with families. I've, I work with a lot of families now several times a week and I'm in my day job now. I have a, a social working day job. You work with families and you watch them go through that process. And you just know, you don't really need to like speak a hard truth to them because it's going to take a while and they're going to keep coming back around and they're going to get to that point, you know, where they cross through and aren't as blind or maybe arrogant or whatever is driving that inability to see the reality as it is or the possibilities as they are. And people eventually, you know, maybe not, but most do just come to the truth. I mean, I know I did and it took a while and then now I'm pretty good about seeing it early. Well, and I also think the good in all of this is it's humbling. And that's a good thing. It is. It it really, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in now. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the thoughts that I have now. I wouldn't be as compassionate and caring as as I feel I am now. And, And really, it's all thanks to having gone through this experience. I know there's a lot of listeners out there probably saying, well, I don't want to go through this, through this experience. And I totally get that. But just to kind of pull a little bit of positiveness out of it, understanding that, wow, I've really changed as a human being on how I, how I look at the world. And I call it the M&M effect. It makes you mindful and merciful. Mm-hmm. More mindful and merciful than you were before. Mindful of yourself and your flaws and you know, the, just the possibilities of how life could go right. It helps you see other people. You know, I was just telling somebody today that when like a telemarketer calls, I'm unable to be rude. I can be irritated and I can be firm, but I just cannot be rude or cruel because I I always think that's someone's son that's just kind of trying to make it, you know, and you know, I can be uninterested, but I just can't be vicious and rude. And it's really, you know, having gone through this has deepened my level of empathy and compassion for people in, in ways that. I know not only can we go through certain things, but I understand that other people probably are as well because you never know. You know, this was a great topic. I think I'm going to try really hard to get Anita Devlin, the woman from that video. I want her to come on here and yeah. share with us how difficult it was for her to um, to get through things. I'm going to see. Stay tuned to our listeners because maybe we can get Anita Devlin to come on to the show and and share with us. She's doing fantastic work. And I think we're all in this together, no matter if if you're a newbie and you're at the beginning of it and just coming to understand certain terms and realities and processes, or you've been around the mountain a time or two. We are all in this together. I want to end this with my favorite quote. It's by Ram Das, if I'm saying that right. It's my favorite quote ever. He says, we are all just walking each other home. I love it. I love it too. Okay, until Uh, next time. Bye, Annie. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online, or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.